You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. In our last episode, you met my friend, Jessie Pascarelli. Jessie is named after her Aunt Jessie, who died in a tragic car accident long before Jessie was born. Jessie's story has been making me think a lot about my uncle, Dick, my dad's brother who died very young before I was born. I did an episode about Dick in the first season of Family Ghosts. And talking to Jessie for this series, she used this beautiful image to describe her experience of trying to learn about her Aunt Jessie. She said it's like filling in pages in a coloring book. No one in her family has the definitive story. They just have snippets and anecdotes, dashes of color that gradually start to fill in an abstract portrait of a person that Jessie ultimately can't ever know. It made me think about the end of my story about my uncle when I received this very precious gift, a collection of paintings that my Uncle Dick made before he died. And I treat these paintings as talismans. They are the most palpable evidence I'll ever have of who he was. Abstract renderings of barns and countrysides and lighthouses created by his hands. They are the closest I'll ever get to meeting him in person. But they aren't him. They're just something tangible that I can hold up alongside the few stories about his life that survive. I'm lucky he made them. Jessie is less fortunate in that regard. All that's left of her Aunt Jessie are a handful of recollections. And even those have been hard to come by. Jessie's family has often tended to talk about Jessie in the context of the car crash that took her life. And Jessie's always wondered what she might discover if she could convince her mom and her mom's siblings to open up about who Jessie was before that. And this week, that's exactly what you're going to hear. She could build a fire out of anything, right? She mm-hmm. spent a lot of her time, I don't know what, smoking dope and drinking around fires in high school. Jesse and I were just a little pod. When we're talking about what happened in our past, all of us took away a different story, a slightly different storyline. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Namesake, Part 2. Our story continues after the break. Over the course of several weeks this past spring, Jessie and I called up her relatives and asked them to talk about her Aunt Jessie. We spent hours on the phone with Jessie's Aunt Lisa. I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not going to say anything that's going to be earth-shattering. Trust me. Her Uncle Ian. I'm in an unbelievable room. I'm staying in a rock, basically in the pool house of a rock star's house. So currently, nice. these are war halls on the background. And of course, Jessie's mom, Allie. Um, can you describe her physically? She was probably five, six, 
She was curvy. Uh, she had boobs, um, all the things that I don't have. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, yeah, it was really interesting uh, shopping for bras with you when I was going through puberty and you were like, well, you probably only need this. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> When you picture her, like, the way she would want to dress, what do you, what's like a Jesse uniform that you would a picture? A Jesse would be blue jeans, blue jean jacket, uh, plaid shirt. Physically strong, capable. You know, she wasn't like a dancer athlete, but um, she had a very strong right hand because she liked to drink beer. And there was a lot of 12-ounce uh, girls. <laughs> I was probably in college at this time. And uh, she was 11 or 12. And um, I was with my friend Chris Dennison in the kitchen. So she came in one day and she says, I have a joke. And so the joke was, there are two Frenchmen with a pickup truck. Um, and Jules says, hey, Alois, see if my uh, blinker is working. And Alois gets out of the truck, walks around to the back, and uh, Jules flicks on the blinker, and uh, Alois goes, we, no, we, no, we, no. And I'm not telling this joke anywhere near as well as Jesse told it. We were in a restaurant with a bunch of other family members, <laughs> and some waiter tried to take her coat or lift her coat off the back of the chair. And Jesse just turned around and looked at him and said, where are you going with that sport shoes? And <laughs> after that, everybody, everybody just called everybody else sport shoes because the guy was wearing sneakers. So she looked down and go, where are you going with that sport shoes? And it was such a tough babe kind of comment. And that was very much her. You know, we went over to a family friend's wedding, and after the wedding, we're at a bar, got drunk. Jesse and I got in a big argument. I don't remember about what, but Jesse got so mad at me, she took the dress that I wore to the wedding, which I absolutely adored. I can't even remember what it was. And she lit it on fire in the uh, hotel bathroom. When she got drunk, that sometimes was a problem. I got drunk too, probably at various points, so I'm not going to point many fingers on that level. She, she could be really mean. She knew the thing that would hurt you the most and she would use it against you. Obviously she can't say, well, like Allie was no angel either. Like she, she's I, not here to say that. Yes, yeah, she would. <laughs> <laughs> she would say you were the perfect sister. You never did anything mean to her ever. Yeah, never did a thing. I mean, the fundamental bottom line on a lot of this is Jesse, like the rest of us, were coming from a unique environment uh, in living in the household of Jack and Betty Valentine. I mean, Jack and Betty were so undone sometimes, having seven children. And I mean, and Betty used to tie us to our bed at nap hour because she just didn't know what to do with us anymore. And there was very little supervision, very little sort of forethought on is this the right school for my child? Or, you know, even asking the question, what's the best thing for Jesse? That probably wasn't asked. You know, we literally were in the same bedroom. Um, 
not just in the same house, but in the same bedroom together. So I, it was always just a little more physically more immediate for me. Jesse and I were just a little pod. And then the other yeah. people, you know, we were so close in age, but my brother Ian was away at boarding school. Pete was sort of in and out of the house, boarding school, reform school, army school. Lisa went away. Annie went away. And when I was a junior in high school, I went off to Lawrence Academy. I went away to school when I was 13. So Jesse was only six or seven then. And so I didn't live at home really in a consistent way from that point on ever again. You know, if you look at the history of it, my parents would because if this had been done to them, the kids would be 13 and the parents would, my parents would kick the kids out of the house and send them to boarding school. But they did not send Jesse to boarding school. So she never left home in a weird way. And she became very, very close to my mother. She was the first person to begin to call my parents by their first names, mm-hmm. Betty, Jack. Up to then, Everybody had been ma, dad, father, mother, all that kind of stuff. But she began to kind of have this almost peer relationship with them that really changed the dynamic of the family. I think my mother began to, um, she'd never had a relationship with any of her children like she had with Jesse. Jesse was the apple of Jack's eye. Yeah. Um, I, and she, he used to always say, she's the apple of my eye. And... Yes, they were very close to Jesse. Jesse was very easy to be close to. I was living on Cape Cod and I was working in a restaurant. It has to be Christmas time and I am dead broke. And I'm going to be sitting there by myself on Cape Cod, you know, on Christmas. And my mother and father were like, oh, gee, that's too bad. And um, (laughs) my sister Jesse got in a car in a blizzard and drove to Cape Cod and picked me up and brought me home. Oh, I was pretty good. When I moved to Los Angeles, which was in 1979, 1980, Jesse was 17 or 18. I didn't really know her very well at this point. We hadn't lived together in a long time. So she came out to LA and we took an epic road trip with me for um, a month and a half or two months. So that's when she and I really bonded as as adults. We would camp and she could build a fire out of anything, right? She'd spent a lot of her time, I don't know what, smoking dope and drinking around fires in high school. She was a townie. She, you know, she was a, a, a townie for one thing. She's a townie and that's maybe a dated expression, but was what was called at the time. She went to school at uh, the public school, her friends, you know, were sort of, you know, they were out, they were out sort of boozing and cruising. Her boyfriends all rode motorcycles. She went to Concord Carlisle High School, and she had an accent. She had a Massachusetts accent. I was in college, and I came home to watch her go to prom, and she had a dress, sleepless dress, strapless dress, I guess. And um, her date did not know how to pin the corsage on so close to her bust. And so there's a picture of me, um, you know, pinning the corsage on her dress for her, which was not the year that she was arrested at prom. 
That must have been the next year. Yeah. <laughs> what a woman. Yeah. <laughs> School did not come easily to her. She goes to Franklin Pierce College, which is in southern New Hampshire, and she lasts about a year, year and a half there. Jesse just couldn't buckle down. And then she came to UMass and she lived with me in my off-campus housing house. And then she went to community college out there. So she still lived in the house with us, but she was going to a community college nearby. And then she became, she started to help in ambulances and do some sort of first aid. And then she, I'll never forget this. One time we were in this house and it was on somewhat of a busy road in Sunderland and uh, a bicyclist got hit by a car outside and I was in the house and Jessie comes running in and she goes, quick, I need some sanitary napkins. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, how much of an emergency is this? <laughs> Did you not have a small clue that might be coming? And she goes, <laughs> she goes, I got to staunch the bleeding. So she ran in the house and got the sanitary napkins and uh, ran outside. And the, the guy was bleeding. I think he had a, a small head wound, which of course bleeds profusely. And I mean, he was okay, but she, you know, was very Johnny on the spot. And then she realized that she um, wanted to become a nurse. And she went to um, Northeastern University. And it was so fabulous for her. She was thriving, A's, absolutely never got A's in her life, no top of her class. And that's when she was killed. Do you remember finding out about her death oh, and yeah. how that happened? You know, I was in New York City. I got the call in the middle of the night. I lay in bed and I thought this just can't be. Uh, and then I thought, Oh my heavens, has she gone to heaven? Well, that can't be. She can't have gone to heaven because she's so unhappy up there because she loves us so much. If you're in heaven, you're supposed to be happy. And I was, you know, I, I was crushed that wherever she was, that she was alone somewhere, crying and crying for her family. I had been at work on Cape Cod. I worked at a bar. It was probably, you know, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, and we got a phone call. I was living with a guy, Renee, at that point. And my mother and father call and say, um, we have bad news. Your sister, Jessie, has died in a car accident. And it was funny. I went back to sleep and then got up and drove to Carlisle the next morning, you know, bright and early. And, and, you know, the line of cars in front of my parents' house was, you know, it was their friends, her friends, teachers. I mean, Jessie wasn't a great student, but she was incredibly charming. So then when it gets to the house and we all gather and we're all there, and there was not a bed for me or Renee. Uh, so we slept on a couch. And I don't think I ever slept more soundly in my life. I, would, I was so emotionally drained. But then when my head hit the pillow, I, I seriously remember this, that I just slept like it was like a reaction. One of my biggest memories was getting there and um, 
Ian calling on the phone, who was right in the middle of his second year at Stanford Business School. And he said, you know, I I'm so feel so badly about this, but there's nothing I can really do. And I said, oh, yes, you can do something. You can come. So I'm in business school, and um, so I get a phone call. I think Lisa called me, said, I don't know if I can even say this. Your father needs you. He has, you have to come right away. He needs you. We got on a plane. We got back there. And I remember arriving and looking at the house and thinking, oh my fucking God, I have to go in here now. Really face this. Ian walked in the door at about one in the morning. Jack came down the stairs in his bathrobe. And when he saw Ian, he just burst into tears. You know, he really needed everybody around him. It was really, really, really sweet. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. All of those conversations gave Jessie a lot to think about. So one day, she did what she often does when she needs to think. She went for a hike. And just like she did last time, she pulled out her phone and started recording. A few days ago, I went on a hike in the Greenbelt. And uh, the Greenbelt in Austin, Texas, is a series of trails that runs alongside a creek. But most of the time, you wouldn't know that it's a creek. It looks like a dry riverbed because I would say about 90% of the time, there's no water in the creek. Which means that if you want to, you can also just hike in the creek bed. And uh, I was hiking here, and I saw in the dry creek bed a circle of stones with a bunch of those uh, cairns stacked in the middle. And I thought that was so interesting that people make cairns all the time where they stack the rocks on top of each other. And I stood in the center of the circle and I looked around and it got me thinking about the way we try to leave marks and how we try so hard to do things or make things that will last after we're gone. Things like art, scientific discoveries, and getting your paper, your name in the local paper, and building cairns in the middle of dry creek beds that a few times a year, a creek will flow through and knock down. Thinking about my Aunt Jessie this way, she didn't really have time to build a cairn of her own making anyway. The marker to her memory that she made was herself. Everyone we've talked to has said she had a larger than life personality, that she was 
something I think that's pretty rare. Self-aware and self-confident and unapologetically herself. Of course, the people looking back at her are going to think of her in the parlance of what we've been talking about as a finished book because her life began and it ended. And everything in between are the chapters that we now have to write for her. Eventually, the people who knew her best will be gone. And I'll have the memories of what my mom have told me. And we'll have this podcast. But eventually, this podcast will be gone too. Someday, there will not be a person on this earth who remembers. And I don't think that means that it's not worth making a cairn just because the creek is going to wash it away. I'm, I'm just so um, grateful to you and moved by the, the voice memo you sent about the cairns. Um, mm-hmm. For I don't know how you're feeling about it in the aftermath of having those thoughts and setting them down in sound, but I just feel like you captured so much of what this story is about and candidly, Jesse, so much of what this entire project is about. In a way, nothing we do, no matter when we leave, actually matters because it will all be washed away. And so there's a way in which what your aunt was robbed of is the illusion of permanence, the illusion of legacy. And there's this idea in these conversations that all of you and her family who have not died at a tragically young age will get to to have that, that permanence. But in a way, she's being given even more of a legacy than she maybe might have had had she lived. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I, I guess I mean that in the sense of there's just been so much in these conversations about how she was like, oh, she was like a townie. And it's not necessarily the kind of life that you would tell a story about. And in a way, it's like her death means that we're telling her story in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. I've thought about that a lot. One of the types of stories I really like is when people dive down into small things, when they take something that is like seemingly insignificant or seemingly uh, unimportant and blow it up to look at it really closely and draw inferences from it. There is a um, sacred reading practice called, um, it's, there's, I've heard different pronunciations, either Lexio or Lectio Divina. And the idea is that you can open up a book and choose a sentence at random from a sacred text and derive meaning from it by following a certain reading practice. And I think in looking at Jesse's life, trying to understand it, it feels a little bit like treating something as sacred, not because she died, but treating it as sacred like having the opportunity to treat it as sacred because she died. And the process of doing that, I think, is worth is worth it. 
And I think that if I'm diving down into like, because I was just thinking like, what is it? What do I mean by it's worth it to do it? My thought is that in diving into the story and looking at it really closely, in treating it as something important that can be divined, that something can be divined from, I don't think you need to be informed by grief in order to have those things happen. But it's these big ripple creating moments that that let you maybe examine that phenomenon of how effective we are on the world. All of us took away a different story, a slightly different storyline of events and outcomes. She was a good companion. We were both curious about what the road and what lay ahead, where we were going. She would have rocked as a nurse. You know, smart, funny, empathetic. I mean, all of those things were the, the, the sort of also the reasons that she could, when she got mean, she knew just what to say and do to make you hurt the most. All of those qualities, if you, you turn them around the other way, in my opinion, can also make you a very effective person. One of the things you realize is that life is lived, you know, on a 10-point scale between, say, 3 and 7, with all the mm -hmm. highs and lows of our regular life falling somewhere between 3 and 7. And when somebody dies, especially tragically, it's like negative 10 on that scale. It's a place you've never been to. It's a place that you can't understand unless you've been there. And it's a place you don't want to ever go to again. I mean, part of the devastation is losing somebody, but the other part of it is witnessing other people's devastation. My father, was a wreck and he couldn't do the eulogy right and so i suddenly said oh it's my job i'm the eldest brother it's moving me to say this and i'm gonna have to step it up and uh give the eulogy for my sister and um and i did that was the defining factor of when i became a man you know, that was where I said, oh, I've picked up the ball from my father, yeah. I'm a man. I was engaged to the guy that I was living with when she died, uh, this guy, Renee, and I realized that he was, we were not good together. You know, we weren't good for each other. And then I stopped dating him and met my now husband and realized that, you know, this was the guy for me. I'm not sure I would have, I might have just coasted along. I, I think the tragedy of her death uh, woke me up a little bit. There was still one other person that Jesse wanted to talk to. Someone whose life was arguably even more deeply affected by her Aunt Jessie's death. Someone who was right there with Jesse when it happened. I remember getting in the car and, and then I really don't remember anything after that. Don't be afraid to ask anything, ask me anything. That's next time on Family Ghosts. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Thanks to Jessie Pascarelli for sharing her story with us. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, 
and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. We use incidental music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Family Ghosts comes out every other week. And if you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between new episodes, please check out Fisher Family Ghosts. It's a recap podcast for the HBO dramedy Six Feet Under, which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary, and which, it won't surprise you to learn, was a source of great inspiration for this very podcast. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under and then talk about the ways the themes, characters, and story influence our own approaches to storytelling, not to mention our perceptions of our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. We'll be back in two weeks with the next chapter of Jesse's story. Thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. <laughs>